right. So, uh, as always, thank all of you for joining us today at this wonderful, wonderful time we're having on the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. Today we're moving into section 3.10, that of capitalist representation. The movement of writing, the movement of meaning, the movement of representation in general, how we've gone from uh, pictographs to that of the written word under the despot to something more, something a bit more insidious to say the least. Um, excitedly, I'm, I'm jazzed to be jumping into this, but we will go ahead and do what we can. Um, before we get going, does anyone have any, uh, thoughts, notes, anything that we have to, uh, chat about before we dive in, or should I just go ahead and start right into our reading? Uh, I'll ask, uh, as I always do, please check our announcements section, please check our ongoing readings and, uh, see what else we've got going. There's a lot happening and a lot of readings on the server. But uh, for now, I'll go ahead and dive into uh, capitalist representation. Writing has never been capitalism's thing. Capitalism is profoundly illiterate. The death of writing is like the death of God or the death of the Father. The thing was settled a long time ago, although the news of the event is slow to reach us, and there survives in us the memory of extinct signs with which we still write. The reason for this is simple. Writing implies a use of language in general according to which graphism becomes aligned on the voice, but also overcodes it and induces a fictitious voice. From on high, it functions as a signifier. The arbitrary nature of the thing designated, the subordination of the signified, <coughs> the, uh, pardon me, the Transcendence of the despotic signifier, and finally, its consecutive decomposition into minimal elements within a field of eminence uncovered by the withdrawal of the despot. All this is evidence that writing belongs to imperial despotic representation. Once this is said, what exactly is meant when someone announces the collapse of the Gutenberg galaxy? Of course, capitalism has made and continues to make use of writing. Not only is writing adapted to money as the general equivalent, but the specific functions of money in capitalism went by way of writing and printing, and in some measure continue to do so. The fact nonetheless remains that writing typically plays the role of an archaism in capitalism, the Gutenberg press being the element that confers on the archaism a current function. But the capitalist use of language is different in nature. It is realized or becomes concrete within the field of eminence peculiar to capitalism itself, with the appearance of the technical means of expression that correspond to the generalized decoding of flows, instead of still referring, in a direct or indirect form, to despotic overcoding. Let's see where to break down this one. Um... Well, first we'll ask, does anyone have questions on this before I dive in and try to break down where I had issues my first times through this? Uh, I'm going to guess that's no. It's a fairly crisp paragraph talking through the the shift that making again, again, pointing at the, the way that it was uh, under the despot where writing sort of took control of the voice, this, this, this element that also has this uh, uh, the designation, the despotic signifier and the minimal elements within a field of eminence uncovered by the withdrawal of the despot, all these things that we've talked through, through representation of the despotic. The move into capital, we've kept these. These things are still working, but 
they, they aren't the forefront. This is not actually how representation really functions under capital. It's an early sort of version of that. Uh, JK, was that you? I heard jump. Uh, yeah, jump. The, uh, Gutenberg galaxy, uh, is that the, they mentioned that seemed to be an like, important idea. I, I, I actually, I don't know what it's a reference to. My guess is that it's a more of a, um, it's a reference to the idea of the world of writing, like at, and pr the printed word, the Gutenberg galaxy as like a clever sort of name for it is how I understood it. I spent time Googling that once upon a time and I couldn't find anyone actually calling for the death or the end of the Gutenberg galaxy. So my guess is that it's more of a, a collective, interesting sort of comment from him. Now the death of the Gutenberg galaxy. The, the last bit here, the last sentence is the one that matters a great deal as we move to McLuhan in the next paragraph, which I'll read in just a moment. Um, but it's, it's McLuhan here, I think, that uh, they're going to be referencing that's very important. Uh, the line being, the capitalist use of language uh, as a sort of function itself, the capitalist use of language is different in nature. It is realized or becomes concrete within the field of eminence peculiar to capitalism itself, with the appearance of the technical means of expression that correspond to the generalized decoding of flows, instead of still referring in a direct or indirect form to despotic overcoding. Again, when, when we're in the despotic socius, the overcoding that gets played by everything is by the despot. Everything is ultimately controlled or in reference to the despot overcoding everything that's happening. But no longer is that the case. This, this is shifting. There's, there's a move um, that is now about a generalized decoding of flows rather than one that is the despot demanding this be that or, or that this or that, if that makes sense. Um, but with that, I'll continue to the next uh, little bit here. Can I Please. Comment on that? Yeah, of course. So, yeah, to your point, right, overcoding's um, changing, right? So, the imbrication process, the way in which bits of code are actually sort of like layered and layered and stacked upon each other, um, is changing here, right? So, like the Gutenberg Press, the idea was that, um, you know, or like the Gutenberg Bible, that um, books and literacy was able to spread. So as to make the means of um, writing and reading um, sort of available to everybody, right? Uh, and that was a technical achievement in that, right? And we can think about what that means in terms of the spot socius. But like Brooks is getting that right. Something's changing with capitalism, right? So something like a writing press as a technical machine is being reconfigured, right? And so when we look here at um, but the capitalist use of language is different in nature, right? Um, the part that I want to focus on real quickly was the appearance of the technical means of expression that correspond to the generalized decoding of flows instead of still referring in direct or indirect form to despotic overcoding. So one thing we can say here, right? Um, technical objects, especially in the production of subjectivity, but also the recording process, they're here not playing into the, the overcoding of the despot or the um, the earth star, right? We can even kind of contrast the use of the, the technical machines by capital with the despotic um, interplay of the, the earth star. So as to overcode, whereas now we're talking about how uh, writing itself is actually bound up in processes of decoding, which I think makes the illiteracy point kind of nicely, right? 
it's not so much that people can't read or write here per se. I think their point is more so that the very act of writing, the very use of language and codes are themselves in processes of decoding as opposed to that layering we were just talking about. Yeah, and it's and it's again the 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 reason and the means and what makes people do things. When we're talking about despotic overcoding, it's the 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 thing we're ultimately doing, and it's for the despot or um, it's for the my alliances or affiliations under the primitive or what those come to be under um, the despot, which is the despot, and it's this this ends of it all that things become sort of overcoded as that that it's for the despot it's for god and country it's for caesar uh, render under caesar what is caesar's kind of thing but this this shift that's happening now is the removal of that is the removal of this ends is the removal of uh, as they sort of phrase it here very specifically um, it's a generalized decoding of flows because again we're talking about as we've been talking about production the shift of production and how it works uh, versus the primitive versus the despotic. Uh, in the primitive, production is uh, imminent almost to the real. I'm doing what I'm doing. It's inscribed upon me. It's a very harsh world of demands of what I do. Under despotic, uh, the orders come down from on high and I do what I do, but it's it's not, the, the, the whole thing isn't necessarily matched to, uh, I'm getting an echo from somebody. Um, the whole thing isn't necessarily matched to like, oh, I'm, uh, I, I'm doing production literally because of this or that. It's, it's all in line with it. But now we've made the shift and suddenly like production is, is matched to it. Uh, how to put it, um, uh, uh, the system of production and anti-production are, are imminent to each other now. And as such, representation takes a significant shift. We're about to get into that. I'll, I'll kind of just dive ahead. I shouldn't be skipping. Um, this seems for us to be the significance in McLuhan's analyses to have shown what a language of decoded flows is, as opposed to a signifier that strangles and overcodes the flows. In the first place, for non-signifying language, anything will do, whether it be phonic, graphic, gestural, etc. No flow is privileged in this language, which remains indifferent to its substance or its support, inasmuch as the latter is an amorphous continuum. The electric flow can be considered as the realization of such a flow that is indeterminate as such. But a substance is said to be formed when a flow enters into a relationship with another flow, such that the first defines a content and the second an expression. The deterritorialized flows of content and expression are in a state of conjunction or reciprocal precondition that constitutes figures as the ultimate units of both content and expression. These figures do not derive from a signifier, nor are they even signs as minimal elements of the signifier. They are non-signs, or rather non-signifying signs. Point signs having several dimensions, flows breaks or skizzes that form images through their coming together in a whole, but that do not maintain any identity when they pass from one whole to another. Hence the figures, that is, the skizzes or breaks flows, are in no way figurative. They become figurative only in a particular constellation that dissolves in order to be replaced by another one. 3 million points per second transmitted by television, only a few of which are retained. Electric language 
does not go by way of the voice of writing. Data processing does without them both, as does that discipline appropriately named fluidics, which operates by means of streams of gas. The computer is a machine for instantaneous and generalized decoding. Michel Serres defines in this sense the correlation of the break and flow in the signs of the new technical language of machines, where production is narrowly determined by information. Take, for example, a cloverleaf highway interchange. It is a quasi-point that analyses through multiple overlappings along a dimension that is normal to the network space, the lines of flow for which it serves as a receiver. On it, one can go from any afferent direction to any efferent direction, and in whatever order, without ever encountering any of the other directions. If I like, I will never come back to the same point, although it will be the same, a topological knot where everything is connected without confusion, where everything flows together and is distributed. Thus a knot may be seen as a point having several dimensions, which, far from canceling the flows, contains them and sets them in motion. This cordoning off of production through information shows once again that the productive essence of capitalism functions or speaks only in the language of signs imposed on it by merchant capital or the axiomatic of the market. Uh, to read the McLuhan quote uh, he references here uh, at the bottom, uh, from Understanding the Media, uh, which I recommend is reading for anyone. The electric light is pure information. It is a medium without a message, as it were, unless it is used to spell out some verbal ad or name. This fact, characteristic of all media, means that the content of any medium is always another medium. The content of writing is speech, just as the written word is the content of print. Print is the content of the telegraph. Um, first, any top-line thoughts before we start breaking down this entire paragraph? Yeah, I looked up uh, Marsh McLuhan's. Uh, he wrote a book called The uh, Gutenberg Galaxy, and he, he uh, divides history into four epochs, oral tribe culture, manuscript culture, and then the third one is Gutenberg Galaxy. He and actually then, wrote, God damn it, of course he did. The last one is that electronic age. Yeah, this is one he's talking about here, I guess. So I guess we're in the electronic age, right? It coincides with capitalism. Well, and this is one of the hallmarks of capitalism, right? So it's not, like we said a few few sessions ago, right? It's not simply uh, reducible to money, right? It is also the machinery of it all, right? But if you do your economic analysis, right, the machines um, or the means of production, right, it's going to be um, sort of the hallmark of capitalism, not just for Marxian thought, but for economic thought in general. So, yeah, I guess that would bind up... Um, almost uh, creepily. <laughs> so it looks like his reference for Gutenberg Galaxy, goddammit. I feel like I, I thought I so thought I had looked this up. Um, references a great deal of Finnegan's Wake. And so his reference is basically to an intertextuality of a Gutenberg Galaxy, the way that they're all touching into things. Uh, and apparently uh, Shakespeare's King Lear would be second place, the other thing he talks about. But a quote from it is, Throughout Finnegan's Wake, Joyce specifies the Tower of Babel as the Tower of Sleep, that is, the Tower of the Witless Assumption, or what Bacon calls the Reign of the Idiots. Um, it's a play through all of that. Um, 
And uh, the book everyone's familiar with, with McLuhan is uh, the book, uh, The Medium is the Message, which is also the saying that kind of has come out of that, that is said quite often without people really thinking through what it means. But um, The Medium of the Message, to read just straight out of Wikipedia, it's a great line, is that new technologies like alphabets, printy presses, speech itself, exert a gravitational effect on cognition, which in turn affects social organization. Print technology changes our perceptual habits, the visual homogenizing of experience, which in turn affects social interactions, which fosters a mentality that gradually resists but a specialist outlook overall. According to McLuhan, the advent of print technology contributed to and made possible most of the salient threads in the modern period of the Western world. For McLuhan, these trends all reverberate with print technology's principle of segmentation of actions and functions and principle of visual quantification. It's a wonderful bit. Um, carried through, I think, pretty nicely here uh, by, by D&G. Thanks for that, JK. Glad you're Googling stuff. I wish I had Googled that. God damn it, I feel dumb. No, it's okay. I'm, I'm sorry. To... I'm just trying to clarify, you know, my, my own understanding. Because I seem to hear, I've heard it before, but then it, uh, and then I, and then when you, you know, look into it, because I haven't read uh, Marshall McLuhan that much. I'm just, well, that's, it's, I'm going to just real quick, because I think it's also worth mentioning the idea of content and expression uh, also stems from, and this is where I first got into, thanks to Kent, uh, who hasn't joined us today, uh, is uh, Yelmslev where content and expression are essentially his algebra of the way language works. Um, the Prolegoma of Language is the book. Phenomenal, interesting read. And a lot of that uh, that Deleuze and McLuhan are pulling from comes from uh, his writings, for sure. Uh, I'll link to it. Uh, give me a moment. I'll link to it. Please turn and please type away. Sorry, I'm slow. <laughs> But I mean, I was just going to type about uh, the interesting part up at the top of the, the paragraph on how non-signs come together to form images. And this is, I think it's worth us spending a moment on that because it's, th this whole thing is sort of a really fast journey all the way through a lot of uh, McLuhan stuff, but Yelmslev stuff sort of to bring us quickly through it. So yeah, let's, let's jump in there at his words in the first place. For non-signifying language, anything will do, whether it be phonic, graphic, gestural, etc. No flow is privileged in this language, which remains indifferent to its substance or its support, inasmuch as the latter is an amorphous continu continuum. The electric flow can be considered as a realization of such a flow that is indeterminate as such. But a substance is said to be formed when a flow enters into a relationship with another flow, and that the first defines a content and the second an expression. Whew, lot said there. Um, the the way a, a gestural or a graphic language or phonic uh, pre-language, as he may describe, or a lot of what we sort of experience uh, in terms of language has these very, very tiny parts. Uh, Yelmslab uh, very much broke this down. I linked to it. Um, the the I linked to a, a really great sort of version of his his way that he sees how signs function and how he sort of plays off of uh, Sassur, um, but also sort of marries into him. Um, the, the way signs work with him is that they have an expression and content, like just to be very specific here. 
Um, to quote, a sign function exists between in absolutely inseparable terminals. For terminals constituting a sign function, sign expression, size content, Himslev gives the technical name of functives. This idea of these little base layers of elements. Uh, for anyone who's in our uh, uh, other reading group for logic of sense, you may be thinking of uh, uh, the same thing when it comes to uh, points or uh, aleatory points or singularities. These are very much what he's talking about here. They're all the elements of what make the communication or the things, the, the phonic, the graphic, these little bits. Uh, rock, paper, scissors, sign language is another great one. There's, there's no flow that is privileged in this language, uh, just the actual elements when it is purely non-signifying in and of itself. When it becomes signifying, there's a shift, and that is when these two flows sort of hit. Uh, the flow of content and the flow of expression. And the way that they play together is ultimately how we sort of have these moments of generating meaning. It's a very short version, but I mean, all of logic of sense feels like it's kind of a version of this too. Um, these, these flows of content and, and expression, to quote again, are in a state of conjunction or reciprocal precondition that constitutes figures as the ultimate units of both content and expression. These figures do not derive from a signifier, nor are they even signs as minimal elements of the signifier. They are non-signs, non-signifying signs, points signs, having several dimensions, flows, breaks, and skizzes that form images through their coming together in a whole. Um, I would highly recommend uh, Soon I'll be putting it all of it up. I would recommend Logic of Sense for this. Proust and Signs would be another one where Deleuze is getting deeper into his semiotics here, I think. But uh, if anyone wants to jump in and talk through this, this is pointing at that. It feels like this is pointing at Logic of Sense, especially our most recent reading. Yeah. Um, I mean, so Logic of Sense, you can definitely compare the, the coordination of, um, uh, of semiotics for effects, right? How they communicate with the point signs that are established through the signifying chains in that, right? Or just on the BWO in general. Um, but to move into here in this paragraph, right, we're getting um, a really important ontological remark, right? We're getting what is a decoded flow, right? How does that function in this um, in this system, right? So again, um, why is it, you know, this, this joke about capitalism being illiterate, right? Part of, the, part of the joke is it's not used in signification, right? Or at least for our purposes right now, decoded flows aren't using signification. Um, we're talking about this, this, uh, this bifold plane of content and expression, right? So if we walk this into here, some of the sentences Brooks was looking at, right? I mean, I think the electric flow actually gives it quite an um, Quite a nice image, but even in the construction of images, right? It's not producing words for us to work under semiotics, right? So you're not going from a marking to some sort of mental content, right? As in like normal uh, Saucerian semiotics. We're instead seeing how decoded flows actually push us into this question of not only the medium, right, but of form and its, or, excuse me of content and expression. And a great deal of this is important to also bring into context um, the previous 
two chapters as we talk through what the paralogisms do, how they affect us, how they play into the creation of the subject, um, and how representation works within that. This is incredibly important to keep that in mind as we talk through the actual meaning of these little bits, their ability to come together as a whole, but do not maintain identity when they pass from one form to another. Hence, the figures, the schizes, break flows are not figurative. They become figurative only in a particular constellation that dissolves in order to be replaced by another one. We'll be getting more into that. Uh, he then outlines a handful of great examples of this. I think were he alive today, he would probably have a shitload more of examples given us living in the information age or whatever we want to call the internet and social media these days or meme culture. Uh, meme culture itself feels like uh, a version of this as well, uh, for sure. Um, also, I recommend highly Michelle Sarah's a wonderful author. Um, and I also think it's key to point out constellation there. I thought that's really interesting because, you know, they say the same thing about Oedipus being a constellation um that it, it only like makes sense as a structure uh with context of the father mother and, and the child because of course like you know um any particular one of those things um taken by itself um could not signify the same thing right well, so yeah. perfect point no you're, you're spot you're spot on tiernan it's it's 100 percent about making sure that you have all of the points, that's what generates the thing, the same way that if the Big Dipper was missing one of those stars, we wouldn't see it the same way. The constellation, the use of constellation is very intentional, for sure. Well, and, and let's put this into the, I'm going to use the rock, paper, scissors to make the point, right? Because we want to get at what do decoded flows do here in this kind of semiotics, right? So I, I posted a picture that my buddy, uh, Dr. Tim, gave me. Um, I don't know where he found it, probably the internet, but... Uh, so your point about the constellation, right, is how we're going to get the substance, right? So flows in the conjunction. So, right, and, and again, the third synthesis, the production of subjectivity um, and the consummation of it right there. So with the substance, right, we can kind of understand that through like the rock, paper, scissors game, right? Where the, the conjunction of flows provides us a substance. So if you compare that with the hand, right, you've got fingers, you've got the capacity for the hand to bend, you've got joints, right? You've got these different things that give you the substance of the hand through the relationships, and that provides you a substance of expression. Within the context of rock, paper, scissors, right? You have possible content, right? So this isn't so much about rock meaning something. This is about uh, the content of a certain it's, um, uh, expression, right? So here that the rock is possible by moving your hand in a certain way, um, that paper is possible, right? Which is, is kind of like, instead of thinking about what it means, right? It kind of puts it, um, or at least if we do think about uh, what it means, it's not so much the mental and normal signification way, which if you go back to form, right? So the hand can move in those forms that we call rock, so, uh, paper and scissors, right? And from there, you move into the uh, the way in which the form of the content is going to give you the game of rock, paper, scissors through the way that those combinations uh, have their own relationships, right? So if we put that into these decoded flows, I think the point they're trying to make here is that if it's not a signifying language for like uh, Assyrian purposes, right? 
then we're talking about how decoder flows, if I understand correctly, basically establish um, something like the rock, paper, scissors game. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, the key distinction here would be that there's an actual material sign for Deleuze and Guattari, that being the flow. Well, and that takes us to the allegory they use, or, well, the quote Saris is using, of uh, the highway interchange, the clover interchange, which is by today's standards almost quaint in how it uses it, but I kind of, I still like the use of it because it, we're talking about the ability for us to in, insert ourselves into an interchange and come out from any other direction multiple times, perhaps, never crossing the same space exactly, never having that same direction. The way that an interchange works very much becomes how meaning is effectively generated as well, or how I find meaning, perhaps, from how flows move in and out of these elements. At least that's how I read it, uh, the, the bit. I really love that analogy. Yeah, so again, right, we're moving from the mental aspect of the despotic and the stat through the stacking of codes to, like you're saying, right, there's there's a way in which the decoded flows are actually producing this, um, these sort of games, if you like, for lack of a better word. You may be familiar with Guy Debord, as French um, writer from the, I think, from the 50s. He wrote a book called The um, Spectacle of the Society. I put a, I put a, uh, his name there. I put something, uh, some quotes in the chat. Uh, the spectacle is capital accumulated to the point that it becomes images. So, you know, is Deleuze saying that uh, that images replace um, language in a, in a way? That language shifts. That when, when, when we're talking about language under the despot, and this is uh, part of the way writing works and how writing and voice, uh, graphism and phonism become one. Uh, the ultimately the voice, uh, well, supposedly being in charge, really the written word begins to own it, how it functions, how it works. Uh, that sort of next push, uh, the sort of next thing that happens within capital is that we move away from effectively having uh, what what we might say as a concerted language or a top-down despot who's saying here's what these words mean or here's the the meaning generated or what we're pointing at when we do stuff and instead i would not say images directly but that the elements within things and the constellation of them are what generate our meaning within our language now and it's through image it's through net it's through network effects it's through social requirements is through production all of these things become imminent to each other right, the, right. the line he has i i like it ends it it's this cordoning off of production through information shows once again that the productive essence of capitalism functions or speaks only in the language of signs imposed on it by merchant capital or the axiomatic of the market and that kind of i think is uh, where they're making the point of the essentially boiling everything down to its elements and having like we were talking about a moment ago, the, the constellation of these things. It's also a reduction process that leads to a, a maybe an emphasis on ordinary language, you know, like uh, the Wittgenstein's uh, language games, so that you can't even, you know, you, you know with ordinary language, uh, there's no need to do any philosophy or think any, you know, deeper 
beyond what ordinary language is. That's the reality, right? But I, I think they're working on a different way, right? Because um, when you're spot on, language is changing here altogether, right? And this point about literacy, I think, really makes it because instead of referencing what are the stacks of codes that um, make meaning possible in the society, right? So the code, codification of a flow being this imbricative process and finding meaning in those stackings, we're seeing how um, there is a production of, oh, that's good enough. Um, there's a production through the decoded flows in this non-signifying way, which means we're not gonna be dealing with reference to those mental capacities, which is normally one way we think of writing that we're thinking of the mind sort of accessing um, these, these cognitive ideas about things, right? Uh, instead, we're seeing how the flows themselves are actually conjuncting, right? So we get the third synthesis again to produce um, expression, right? Or the, these forms and contents where, uh, and this is one of the interesting moves I think they're really making here, right? Things are being produced now, um, without reference to that signification. So all these machines and flows at the conjunct to produce the subject are producing them in a similar way that rock, paper, scissors works, right? Without reference to a, a mental capacity, but actually in reference to this kind of, um, uh, this kind of, uh, I guess I'm, I'm gonna stick with the word game here. So well, I, I would, uh, real quick, Jack, because let's pull back, because I'm, to me, uh, how I'm understanding it is they're talking about basically uh, the shift towards the flows being the 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 thing that's ultimately now uh, not even generating meaning, but that is kind of coming together to create those moments. But like the flows and how they work is now the important part. Before we had graphism, we had these things that pointed at stuff or or had meaning or at some point would you know, become a stone for the, the great wall that we were building or um, the, the goods that would be created. We'd have too many chairs and we'd have to have a surplus feast or destruction of them like this, the, you know, the uh, cursed share uh, conception. But now under capital, because we're now talking about flows being able to become anything and then essentially the ephemerality, ephemerality, let's, the the fog that things can be where they can be anything they can enter the intersection this way come out the other way the flows and as they hit the knot that's created has meaning but that meaning suddenly itself is something that then travels and is produced and all of it because again all this is happening up against uh sort of production itself that's one of the things that sort of has shifted big time now meaning the only reason meaning matters is if we're producing surplus value in meaning. And so as such, like these, all of these things start pushing towards that. The, the conjunctions themselves have to have consistent pushing surplus value and that's the flows coming together. And so the surplus value is the connection of uh, content and expression now playing the same role that just things have to in capital in general, all flows. Yeah. So, so meaning is being replaced by maybe perhaps uh, capitalistic monetary value. 
I don't even know about monetary value. I just in general surplus value. So it's the affiliative and the alliance still, right? It's your yes. data that's over D of Y. Because the, the thing about this, this Ishmael ontology is that it's going to be, how do you get the surplus value of flux? Well, things are still possible under certain conditions, right? We've got the second synthesis and affiliated and alliant. But the way that that's going to be able to express and provide content is therefore going to be limited not only in the, the, the production of subjectivity, but in that in the way of that being a decoded flow that remains sort of this production of flux or excess flux. Yes. I think I I, I think I think I agree, yes. It's, it's 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 a big push for us that we're now talking about these flows though, because flows under capitalism, generally speaking, are gonna be deeply regulated and the conjunctions, as we've talked about in the previous one, this conjunction, the moment of that thing, this is where capitalism sits on that conjunction. This is where we sit is the value sits, whatever it may be. This is where surplus value is created. This happens in all flows. And that would include that of what we would consider to be language or conversation or whatever. It Again, memes is a phenomenal example of this. The way that uh, the only meaning that they now generate is the constellation of meaning of that which has also come before, the conjunctions that have followed up prior to that, whether it be this image or piecemeal thing with this other piecemeal bit of text, this other reference from Family Guy mixed with this other philosoph philosophical book, all of these things sort of coming together in this meme that's immediately ephemeral and also tossed out because the flows are constantly moving and having to produce surplus value. They lose meaning themselves. It's more the meaning they generate, which then generates further other memes that constantly are constantly creating and building and going and going and going. And so this, this, this nature and shift from uh, uh, even under the despotic where A means water, a means water, that's the end of the conversation. Uh, and well, that was bad enough under the despotic because it, it created sort of the slave nature of the way language works. Um, this allows this sort of never-ending continuous movement forward of content and expression in ways that are constantly able to move. And they talk through the technical language machines where production is narrowly determined by information and they go through the rest of that. And I think all of us can talk about ways that that works within our own uh, sort of lives or our own world that is not, it's not a reach for me to talk about that, I don't think. So that line, a, a knot may be seen as a point having several dimensions, then, which far from canceling the flows, contains them and sets them in motion. This cordoning off of production through information shows once again the productive essence of capitalism functions or speaks only in the language of signs imposed on it by merchant capital or the axiomatic of the market. And the axiomatic of the market is that of surplus value. The need, the need for that. Well, the axiomatics of the market, those can vary, right? Um, but the production of surplus value of thoughts, that's what the socius is doing, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the axiomatics, and we kind of used the Weberian ones last year when we talked about this, right? Because it's just kind of an easy example but they kind of provide a foundation for signification, right? That's kind of the interesting thing going on here is you still seem to get some aspect of speaking going on um, and something like an axiomatic seems to at least provide you or rather provide capital that um, 
that function, right, the language of signs imposed on by merchant capital or the axiomatic of the market, right? So like the, if I'm not mistaken, the alliance and even the axiomatic actually seem to produce some signifying, um, uh, I guess that the articulation that makes uh, possible for capital or for, for decoded flows in capital, right? Hmm. I think that's fair. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're talking about the other side of this, that um, because there's that lack of signification, it means everything is deeply abstracted, like everyone and everything as part of it. Because again, we're to boil it down and to go back, it's about the flows or the flux, these, these elements and their conjunction. And this doesn't apply just to, hey, we have investment over here and we're able to, through a conjunction, find, make a business and then profits stocks go stonks go high yay gamestop but instead this applies to all flows and fluxes under capital which would include these flows and fluxes that he's outlining here and these point signs that become the elements or the dimensions where there are the flows breaks or skizzes that form images through their coming together in a whole but do not maintain any identity when they pass from one whole to another Hence the figures, the schizes are in no way figurative. They become figurative only in a particular constellation that dissolves in order to be replaced by another one. Wonderful piece that sort of points in that direction. Any, any thoughts, any opinions before I move on to the next paragraph? Um, I'm not, I don't want to kind of harp on this because I think a lot of what I'm saying is also uh, in the next little bits here. I probably shouldn't, shouldn't have had so much coffee this morning. You never need to apologize for drinking too much coffee, only too little. Mm -hmm. I've, I've had those days too. Yeah, so the, the, this kind of, uh, you know, uh, he's talking about the, you know, like uh, identities and so forth. Um, <clears throat> so it, uh, this kind of relates to, um, you know, in the previous books, uh, his, um, his use of the terms common sense and good sense. So in this kind of, uh, this this kind of socius, you know, uh, adapting to that socius means that it's a kind of uh, becomes uh, the good sense and common sense, right? In in this uh, capitalist system. Yeah, I mean, good sense and common sense. Like, I think the most clearest definition of that's actually like a chapter three of difference and repetition, right? Good sense implies that we work backwards from a presupposed teleology, and common sense implies that. Because we work backwards from a presupposed teleology, we uh, subsume all these differences into a commonality and ignore the, the non-unity between these concepts. I, I'm still a bit of confused, confused on how it would apply, but it seems like an interesting connection. Well, I think it would be... Um... How I would respond is I would say, I don't think necessarily we're talking in capitalism of good sense and common sense in the way that, because I think a lot of Deleuze is referring to Kant, and I don't think necessarily under capital we have the same versions of those things, but instead the axiomatics that get generated under capital have a function that isn't wildly different from that, a sort of, hey, here's how things are done, or here's what matters, or here's why, those things, those axiomatics become built into capital and have a, it, it, maybe not exactly the same sort of function, but they sort of take up a space that maybe may seem similar. Is that fair, Varun? So my interpretation, at least, I guess my guess would be it 
you know, we could find examples of good sense and common sense in the paralogistic ways we might interpret capitalism. Um, specifically about, you can give examples like reification. That could be an example of common sense. And good sense could be an example of, I, I don't know, implying that the, uh, implying something like uh, that, the, that the market has a teleology or something like that. That, you know, eventually there'll be a revolution, blah, blah, blah. Um, so it would, so I guess good sense and common sense would be applicable if we misunderstand the genetic account of capitalism. And then in misunderstanding the genetic account of capitalism, we prologistically appropriate what capitalism is and specifically the things they're criti critiquing. And that, that would be the example of where good sense and common sense lies, specifically in the misinterpretation. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's uh, the, the way under capital, a bedrock layer of this is the way things are, which maybe under the despotic good sense and capital, good sense and common sense may make a little bit more sense. Uh, that's a terrible sentence. I should never, I shouldn't be allowed to talk to people. Um, the under, under capital, uh, the, it's the network of the things that came before that, that worked this axiomatic that continually kind of moves forward and keeps pushing. And the way that things and images sort of layer on top of each other, which I think actually, it, again, value and how it's defined here is uh, the next paragraph. And I think I'm going to just jump to that because it's a long paragraph. Any questions specifically on this, the wording inside of this paragraph, maybe not the ideas, which I think we can wait a little bit uh, and get to that, but specifically in anywhere, questions on sentence or structure or anything that's in this specific paragraph. There are great differences between such a linguistics of flows and linguistics of the signifier. Saussurian linguistics, for example, in effect discovers a field of eminence constituted by value, i.e. by the system of relations among ultimate elements of the signifier, but apart from the fact that this field of eminence still presupposes the transcendence of a signifier, which uncovers the field if only through the signifier's own withdrawal. The elements populating this field have, for a criterion, a minimal identity that they owe to their relations of opposition that they keep throughout all the types of variations affecting them. The elements of the signifier as distinguishing units are regulated by coded gaps that the signifier overcodes in its turn. There results diverse but always convergent consequences. The comparison of language to a game, the signified-signifier relationship, where the signified finds itself by nature subordinated to the signifier. Figures defined as effects of the signifier itself, the formal elements of the signifier determined in relation to a phonic substance on which writing even confers a secret privilege. We believe that, from all points of view and despite certain appearances, Louis Yelmslev's linguistic stands in profound opposition to the Saussurian and post-Saussurian undertaking, because it abandons all privilege reference, because it describes a pure field of algebraic eminence that no longer allows any surveillance on the part of a transcendent instance, even one that has withdrawn. Because within this field, it sets in motion its flows of form and substance, content and expression. Because it substitutes the relationship of reciprocal precondition between expression and content for the relationship of subordination between signifier and signified. Because there no longer occurs a double articulation between two hierarchized levels of language, 
but between two convertible, deterritorialized planes, constituted by the relation between the form of the content and the form of expression. Because in this relation, one reaches figures that are no longer effects of a signifier, but skizzes, point signs, or flows breaks that collapse the wall of the signifier, pass through, and continue on beyond. Because these signs have crossed a new threshold of deterritorialization. Because these figures have definitively lost the minimum conditions of identity that defined the elements of the signifier itself. Because in Yelmslev's linguistics, the order of the elements is secondary in relation to the axiomatic of flows and figures. Because the money model in the point sign or in the figure break stripped of its identity, having now only a floating identity, tends to replace the model of the game. In short, Yelmslev's very special position in linguistics and the reactions he provokes seem to be explained by the following. That he tends to fashion a purely eminent theory of language that shatters the double game of the voice graphism domination that causes form and substance, content and expression to flow according to the flows of desire. And that these breaks, these flows according, that breaks these flows according to point signs and figures, schizes. Far from being an overdetermination of structuralism and of its fondness for the signifier, Yelmslev's linguistics implies the concerted destruction of the signifier and constitutes a decoded theory of language about which one can also say an ambiguous tribute, that it is the only linguistics adapted to the nature of both the capitalist and the schizophrenic flows, until the now the only modern and not archaic theory of language. To read the footnote. Nicholas Ruet, for example, takes Yelmslev to task for having elaborated a theory whose applications are on the order of Jabberwocky or Finnegan's Wake introduction to Le Grammaire Generative. Uh, Andrew Martinet stresses the loss of the conditions of identity in Yelmslev's theory. I'm not going to read the French part so as not to insult anyone who speaks French. So this is kind of what we were just talking about, right? It's the difference between the Saucerian use of the signifier and signified, and then obviously like the implications for the referent. It's like the, to to go from that into form and um, sorry, excuse me, into expression and content. You can never break that habit, right? So this is the expansion of um, why and, and arguably the justification to why they're using Heschmel. To understand not only Yelmslev. <laughs> you can't be talking ever since you said Simon Don. I, I so, did. So so now we know Brutz is um oh, his forte is not French, it's what is this Danish? Swedish, right? It's, it's Danish. It's, it doesn't matter. So Yasmel, yeah, oh, man. Yasmel, Yasmel. There we go. Oh, there we go. <laughs> so this is the the difference, right? They're moving out of um, Saucer, which may have been applicable for the despotic and for maybe in some sense the primitive, although not exactly, right? Uh, but anyways, to move from that into um, Yasmel and and where his theory of, of uh, semiotics is actually applicable because it's going to help us 
understand how decoded flows actually coordinate um, through expression and content, right? I mean, if we break it down from the very beginning, right? Um, value is a thing that Sasur actually builds up. It's one of his concepts, right? That assign it within the language structure, within the lang, each sign has a specific value, which is tied to its position in the linguistic structure. And the field of imminence that's being referred to is, I think it's a very interesting reading that Deleuze and Guattari have of structuralism. Because I think they do believe to a certain extent that the lung in structuralism constitutes a field of imminence. So um, I guess the simple way to explain this is, right, language works only by the relations it has with other words. And for Deleuze and Guattari, that, that itself is a field of imminence. So in a, I mean, in a way, weird way, they're actually agreeing with the structuralists here, um, whether you like it or not. But in that sense, the field of imminence would be the relationship between, with, between words that constitute the word's value. So, you know, and th in other words, that's saying, you know, a word only gets its meaning through not being the other word. And another word for the field of imminence would be the long. So, of course, this is what they mean by the system of relations among ultimate elements of the signifier. And essentially, then, that would be the way of talking about expression, the part that the whole of the signification system is greater than its parts. And in that sense, you know, the words are defined by these relations. Um, but then they'll talk about, if you go into the next page, they'll talk about that, that, that presupposition of the transcendence that they owe to their relations. And uh, that's where Hemschlev, they see the solution with Hemschlev to remove the primacy of the signifier and to bring back the primacy of the long over the signifier. So to put the relations before the word in a way. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a great way to put it, the relations before the word, before any of it. That's, again, to go back to the idea of the constellation of meaning that these things have. It's very much it. That's a great way to put it, Varun. Yeah, so I don't know if, uh, I'd be curious what other people think of this. I mean, personally, I think Deleuze has a big affinity for such structuralism, especially people like uh, uh, Levi Strauss, well, not Levi Strauss, Saussure and stuff, because uh, he pays a lot of homage to them in the, uh, in the, in the, in like the fourth chapter of Difference and Repetition. He also talks about structuralist mathematics, and but he really does take a lot from the structuralists. Like he takes their premises pretty seriously, and you know it's not. Yeah, I, there's a tendency in Deleuze scholarship to forget this that Deleuze was actually very sympathetic to the structuralists. Like he took a lot of influence from them. Well, I don't. I don't think Deleuze. Uh, what did I say in a logic sense reading? Because we were talking about that, and then his his writing. I think he has a writing on structuralism, um, but it's. Uh, Deleuze hits this weird point where he's not quite anti-structuralist, although I wouldn't call him structuralist, and he, he's in a unique position when it comes to his relations to them, almost as if uh, uh, he was sort of wanting to occupy the place within uh, structural semiotics that he believes meaning does as a floating point, sort of floating identity amongst it. Yeah, I mean, there, there are too many coincidences for me to point out that the similarity between the long and the virtual have, except that there's a genetic account that structuralism fails to provide, which Deleuze will provide. You know, in logic of sense, this is the difference between dynamics, genesis, and a static genesis. 
uh, Deleuze will provide this where the structuralists can't provide this genetic account. And that's what separates Deleuze, in my opinion. Um, but it's still a very interesting comparison to be drawn. There's not many papers written about it, sadly. Well, and there's, there's something to be said for at least the second synthesis there, too, right, in terms of inclusion and exclusion, because, um, so like you, you mentioned earlier, part of structuralism for Saussure is like the uh, the negative relations of difference, right? This yeah. word is not that word, so therefore that word, uh, so therefore the former can mean this, right? Because it's not these other things. Um, and so when I think of what's going on here with Yosemite and that, one of the, the things that I can't help but um, think is that if you're working from the point uh, of this imminent uh, field in that, but particularly through the precondition, as they call it, the reciprocal precondition, as they call it, actually, of uh, content and expression, then you're going to have to be in a position of uh, affirmation, right? Where the negation is not going to be what's constitutive, but more so something like uh, configuration through what's possible is going to end up being uh, what, what ultimately will produce your semiotics, right? And I, I, I would say that's kind of the, the move I'm thinking there. Yeah, I mean, for Deleuze, affirmation is presupposed when the question of genesis is asked through production rather than possibility. In that sense, you already affirm it. You know, you affirm the dice throw. I mean, that, also that structuralist essay is really interesting. Because I think one thing that I find hilarious about that essay is he, he, he uh, defines structuralism, you know, almost like playing a joke at it. He defines structuralism in a negative way, right? So, you know... We, we can only, we, we get the, for Saussure, right, the word, the meaning of a word is defined through what it is not. For Deleuze's notion of structuralism in his essay, he defines structuralism through what it is not. So it's pretty brilliant, actually. Well, that, that also seems to be what he's kind of moving away from, especially here with uh, Guadari and him using this uh, Yosemelvian, that's not important, this Yosemelvian um, conceptual language, right? Um, and I, I hate to shift the conversation, but it looks like Brooks wants to get back into the text, and I can never say no to getting back in the text. Especially no, no, I, I just, uh, real quick, I just think it might be a good idea, just because uh, it helps, especially as we move into this next bit uh, with Leotard, if anyone wants to give a top line on what his critique is here or what he's critiquing, because we've kind of taken it for granted that everyone's on the same page, who's listening, who's got a grasp maybe of what master signifier means or signifier signification or any of that. Does anyone want to give a top line in it uh, or even structuralism or post-struck anyone? On master signifier? Or, or structuralism and post-struck. Just uh, specifically signifier is what I want to spend a little bit of time on because we're about to get into that with Leotard. So, wait, so the basic understanding of what a signifier is, is that what you're asking? Just, just like a, a rudimentary version. So that way, Anyone who's maybe too embarrassed to say, I don't know what the fuck these guys are talking about at all, can finally have a hat, you know, a hook to hang their hat on. Well, I gotta respect somebody who didn't know about signifiers and entered the skull. It's very hard to read the list without signifiers. But, um, you know, for Sassur, you know, what I basically said earlier was that the phrase tree uh, has no, first of all, it has no internal relation to the concept tree, but neither does it refer to anything, any real tree in the world. It's simply tied to the notion of tree 
by virtue of the fact that it's the only word that it, then there are no other words that refer to tree. So it's through the negation of all the other words that, that tree and the word tree are connected. So the word tree would be the signifier. Um, I don't know, I'll, I'll give the master signifier stuff to somebody else to do, because I'm not that good at that. I, I can give that a shot, because um, it's going to move from Saucer into Lacan, right? But like the master signifier, the spot signifier, uh, if I remember correctly, this is basically going to get into not only the first paralogism, but basically the, the, a lot of the Lacanian subject, right? So in the first synthesis, you have things coming together through the establishment of flows and breaks, right? Connections are being established, relationships are being produced. And the signifying chain is part of that, right? So this is kind of that, um, like we're seeing here, this is that uh, ability for the flow to actually um, not only be productive, but allow for the machine to produce through the flow, right? That never suffocation. Um, so this is where you're getting the point signs is, is going to be that signifying chain, if, if I remember correctly. And so at least for Deleuze and Guadri, that, I believe that's what's going on just in that isolation. If I remember correctly for Lacan, he's going to say that like the thing that you want, right, within the discourse, I think the discourse is S2, which for our purposes is just the relations of different signs, right? Um, is going to need to be represented. Um, and then this is going to be issue two is the subject itself is also going to need to be represented, right? So the, the, the thing that's desired is going to be represented through, I believe it's S1, but the master signifier. But sort of. Uh, the master signifier is, uh, uh, the, the, the kind of comment would be, we find meaning and signification through reference to other bits. If anyone's been in our language, uh, our uh, logic of sense reading, Deleuze deeply goes into how signification insists upon other signification. Uh, it, as a word, signifies a lot of things. Um, but it, 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 it is just it. Um, a master signifier is the end of that. Uh, at some point, we need to halt it. And a master signifier is that which imbues other things with meaning, but has none itself. Uh, an example Zizek uh, uses commonly is, is capital or money. Uh, money gets valued as money. That's it. Money is valued in and of itself, but it doesn't have value itself. Money doesn't do that. But commodities... Uh, chairs, the internet, subscription services, video games, all have uh, a, a value inscribed in money. They're all worth some amount of money. And that's the master signifier. The master signifier is that thing that itself references itself quite often, generally, but has no value itself, but other things insist upon it for value. Um, and it's a very specific sort of... Uh, derivation of Caesarean structural linguistics that Lacan runs with. Uh, God, the good, uh, good sense actually is, is one of those as well. Uh, the law, uh, the law is just the law. The law does the, oh, I do it because it's the law, that master signifier. These kinds of things are how we derive meaning from some uh, thing on high. This is not at all what Deleuze and Guattari are going at. In fact, their critique is of all of these things. I just wanted to spend just a moment to go over that because I, 
I know the people who do listen to us on the end and I get their messages and questions. So, um, and, uh, once upon a time I was the person who was the person embarrassed asking questions cause I was dumb as shit. Um, and didn't understand any of this content. I still dumb as shit, but now I understand some of it. So there we go. So I try to be that person still. Um, but I wanted to go over that because I want to dive right into the next paragraph, um, which is about Leotard. Um, the extreme importance of J.F. Leotard's recent book is due to its position as the first generalized critique of the signifier. In his most general proposition, in fact, he shows that the signifier is overtaken toward the outside by figurative images, just as it is overtaken toward the inside by, a pure, by the pure figures that compose it, or, more decisively, by the figural that comes to short-circuit the signifier's overcoated gaps, inserting itself between them and working under the conditions of identity of their elements. In language and in writing itself, sometimes the letters as breaks, as shattered partial objects, and sometimes the words as undivided flows, as non-decomposable blocks, or full bodies having a tonic value, constitute a signifying signs that deliver themselves over to the order of desire. Rushes of breath and cries, in particular, formal investigations concerning manual or printed writing, change their meaning according to whether the characteristics of the letters and the quality of the words are in the service of the signifier, whose effects they express following exegetical rules, or whether, on the contrary, they break through this wall so as to set flows in motion and establish breaks that overflow or rupture the sign's conditions of identity and that cause books within the book to flow and to disintegrate, entering into multiple configurations whose possibilities were already the object of the typographical exercises of Mayarm, always passing underneath the signifier, filling through the wall, filing through the wall, which again shows that the death of writing is infinite so long as it arises and arrives from within. Someone want to take this paragraph? Well, I suppose it's getting at the thing that we kind of left off on with uh, the Gidevor reference, right? So if, if, we're, if we're dealing with the construction of images, right, this kind of schizophrenic aspect of language in this Hishmelvian system, then we're watching, um, so we're not working with like, what do things mean in reference to like the, the mental, like you said. Um, we're working with the production of images. Right, which is kind of an interesting way of thinking about language and words, right? So in that sense, Leotard here is giving us how, um, so one, those images are actually subverting uh, signification a lot, or more directly with the, the Saucerian model. So now we're not just seeing how Hishmel is a, a replacement for that or an alternative. We're seeing that it actually does something to signification, which is going to take us into like a, the other two sociae, right? Because now we're seeing how signification, right? So signifying in the, the primitive and more recently the signified and the despotic is actually being subverted through the creation of these images. This again expands on your point that uh, capital is illiterate, not because, uh, you know, it's incapable of uh, reading, um, but because that normal sense of like uh, counting the reference to something mental is being actually completely undermined here, right, and subverted through language and construction of images or figures. See, I think uh, this is them again talking about 
the way we come to the productive the productive uh, aspect of the long because the long only takes you that far for Sasur. There's a reason why Sasur has to stop somewhere and doesn't give an account of Genesis because it's very difficult for him to. For Deleuze and Guattari, the solution is to go through materiality. That being, you know, Hemschlub, the fact that you have a material substance that's being altered through significations and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I think what they're doing with Leotard is doing the same thing, except they're, you know, they're bringing things like partial objects here. And they're saying, because, you, you know, you can look at partial objects as being, when you, when you understand the connection of partial objects, specifically from like Melanie Klein and stuff, you can look at, you can look at them as also aspects of signification. For example, um, you know, I, I'm a child and uh, my mother's breasts are no longer there to give me milk and I desire milk, so what do I do? Well, I construct an object, I, I construct uh, a partial object out of my mouth and uh, detect it in the form of sucking other things. That's an example of the construction of a sign in a way. Yeah, I think I can see that because the, the point that um, I want to tie to that is that, right, or more decisively by the so-called figural that comes to short circuit the signifier's coded gaps, inserting itself between them and working on the condition of identity of their elements. So yeah, they definitely draw in the partial objects in terms of language and that, right? So they're working in the first synthesis. But they're also, I think, um, and I think this is what your, your example is showing, the way in which codification and the signifiers there um, would be present, right, through codes and overcoding is encountering decoded flows whose images are actually subverting uh, the codes that are there, right? So just like you're saying, right, the reconstitution of a um, of a function in terms of um, a new configuration also comes with the subversion of a, or it could come with the subversion of a code, particularly like um, in in relation to signifiers, as opposed to point signs. Right. Uh, shall I move to the next paragraph? Any questions or comments? Anything here? Oh, we have uh, someone on YouTube. Uh, said it nicely. I missed it earlier. The comment on structure. Structure becomes machine with Deleuze, which is actually, I think, a really interesting way to sort of put it. I like that. Um, well, yeah, you can also refer to Guattari's essay, Machine and Structure, which we did read on the server. Yes, Something we did. We, we never uploaded it. <laughs> uh, I thought Machine and Structure went pretty well in our discussion. I really enjoyed leading that reading. Um, but we should do it again. Oh, I'm not reading that fucking essay again, man. Uh, <laughs> actually, Brooks, do you have the recording of Machine and Structure? I don't know. I don't know if I have it, because I don't remember who put the voice button. Maybe it's me, and I have to find it somewhere. But, yeah, I mean, Machine and Structure for Guattari, is, he's drawing a lot on that, on that one structuralist comment in Difference and Repetition, specifically Chapter 4. And the difference between differentiation and differentiation in Deleuze, right? Two very different things. Differentiation is, is the is 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 to do with intensities, and differentiation has to do with the reciprocal determination and the virtual. You can talk about how the structure is first of all constituted in a machinic process. So for Deleuze, Guattari finds the solution in the use of differentiation and differentiation in 
difference in repetition, which is an interesting point. Similarly, in the plastic arts, there is a pure figural dimension formed by the active line in the multidimensional point. And on the other hand, the multiple configurations formed by the passive line and the surface it engenders so as to reveal, as in Paul Klee, those intermundia that perhaps are visible only to children, madmen, and primitives. Or in dreams, in some very beautiful pages, Leotard shows that what is at work in dreams is not the signum fire, but a figural dimension underneath, which gives rise to configurations of images that make use of words, making them flow and cutting them according to flows and points that are not linguistic and do not depend on the signifier or its regulated elements. Thus, Leotard everywhere reverses the order of the signifier and the figure. It is not the figures that depend on the signifier and its effects, but the signifying chain that depends on the figural effects, this chain itself being composed of a-signifying signs, crushing the signifiers as well as the signifieds, treating words as things, fabricating new unities, creating from non-figurative figures configurations of images that form and then disintegrate. And these constellations are like flows that imply the breaks affected by points, just as the points imply the fluxion of the material they cause to flow or leak. The sole unity without identity is out of the flux skiz or the break flow, the pure figural element, the figure matrix. Leotard correctly names desire, which carries us to the gates of schizophrenia as a process. There's some, so many good lines in this fucking paragraph. This is a good paragraph. I like this paragraph. Where do we even start then? Um, I would just say straight to the, the dreams. In some beautiful pages, Leotard shows that what is work in dreams is not the signifier. It is not the signifier, but a figural dimension underneath, which gives rise to configurations of images that make use of words, making them flow and cutting them according to flows and points. The, this process, I think, is very on the nose for us. And as we talk about sort of what these things or how this thing functions or what these things do, uh, how this process works, that's probably the nicest crispest version so far we've had of their version of uh, sort of underlying the flows pushing into images, pushing into you know, the configurations of images that push into words, making them flow, cut them according to flows and points. It's a really nice segment uh, that's straight from uh, Leotard's work. Um, I put this image in the chat. It's a painting by Paul Klee, uh, done with, uh, pretty sure it's done with a knife. It's called like Twittering Machine or something. That's, I think this is the painting that he's actually referring to when he talks about Paul Klee. Right, are you guys still there? My uh, audio shit out. I need to get a new microphone. It's a nightmare. Yeah. All right, cool. Making sure it's working. Um, so the, the, the image you post, I, after a little light bit of Googling, which is what kicked my mic offline, um, I think you're right. And I think the line here he uses, uh, intermundia that are visible to children, manmen, and primitives. I love that phrasing because we're talking about the, again, the underlying flows, the, the, the elements, uh, the passive line on the surface it engenders, this multidimensional point, the, uh, the way he's phrasing it is these, these things, these elements that only these, these specific people would be able to notice, everyone else would see the, the end point, I guess you might say. Like there's a, 
there's a process that these paintings show, and I think it's a really fantastic version of that. Thank you for posting it. I, put, I made it full screen for the stream, so we have it recorded. It's a great piece. The line it is not the figures that depend on the signifier and its effects, but the signifying chain that depends on the figural effects, this chain itself being composed of a signifying signs. It's fantastic. Yeah, I posted a pretty introductory video to this piece, too. Thank you. Um, yeah, there's also you, I mean, this is, this is not, this piece is not, um, I mean, I, I, there's also the Laritolne, which is like an essay they wrote on like the, on the refrain in a thousand plateaus, which, um, you know, on the refrain, Paul Cleese mentioned a lot in that, especially this piece. He's okay. I mean, I'm on, but it's, I'm muted. All right. Um. I think, uh, is that any questions on this paragraph? Any elements or things for this one before we move on? Because I kind of want to make sure we get through at least the movement from Leotard to Lacan, and which happens in the next paragraph in two. I want to make sure we get through at least that today. Um, so that way we have a nice break point. So we don't have to go back and revisit all of this stuff again. Um, the, the, the last line in this paragraph is the one that, again, uh, they like to finish off with a lot of stuff that's important. Last line, the pure figural element, the figure matrix, Leotard correctly names desire, which carries us to the gates of schizophrenia as a process. To continue. But what explains the reader's impression that Leotard is continually arresting the process and steering the schizes toward shores he has so recently left behind? toward coated or overcoated territories, spaces, and structures to which they only bring transgressions, disorders, and deformations that are secondary in spite of everything, instead of forming and transporting further the desiring machines that are in opposition to the structures and the intensities that are in opposition to the spaces. The explanation is that despite his attempt at linking desire to a fundamental yes, Leotard reintroduces lack and absence into desire, maintains desire under the law of castration at the risk of restoring the entire signifier along with the law, and discovers the matrix of the figure in fantasy, the simple fantasy that comes to veil desiring production, the whole of desire as effective production. But, at least for an instant, the mortgage of the signifier was raised, that enormous archaism that causes so many of us to groan and bow under its weight, and that others use to establish a new terrorism, diverting Lacan's imperial discourse into a university discourse characterized by a pure scientificity, that scientificity perfectly suited for resupplying our neurosis, for strangling the process once again, and for overcoating Oedipus with castration, well, chaining us to the current structural format functions of a vanished archaic despot. For it is certain that even, and especially in their manifestations of extreme force, neither capitalism, nor revolution, nor schizophrenia follows the paths of the signifier. We're going to be revisiting Oedipus here uh, a lot as we kind of move forward, but it, this is a poke back and a, and a sort of callback to the discussion we've had, which is, is Oedipus at last, or how Oedipus works within this. 
But underneath all of this, Leotard ultimately could not help himself but reintroduce lack and absence into desire as as elements or as, as a missing, as a negative, as these things, these parts of it. And he couldn't help because ultimately he's still dealing with this law of castration. The entire signification matrix that sort of comes with that, the, the play of fantasy, the simple fantasy that comes to veil desiring production, the whole of desire as effective production. The, this is one of their sort of uh, underlying critiques of a lot of things, but this is their push towards specifically that. And then again to Lacan, um, which is a cheeky ass comment uh, bit here. Um, the imperial discourse into a university discourse. Um, but hey, I'm not super Lacan, so I won't pretend to be too well read on it, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty snarky little shit thing to say. I like it. But again, um, Coming back to this idea of strangling the process, controlling desire, placing this overcoating on it. Um, and the last line is the one I attached to, which is signification, neither capitalism nor revolution nor schizophrenia, those three said together is one of the very unique parts of this text and what they're pushing towards and how they're playing towards might be what comes next or you know, ultimately chapter four and schizoanalysis. Um, but even in manifestations of extreme force, neither capitalism, revolution, or schizophrenia follow the paths of the signifier, that they instead go this Yelmslevian route um, of the sort of imminent creation of the uh, content and the uh, expression in those points. Then the big thing is the way that they're tying the signifying chain with the figure, right? That's that's the thing that Leotard gets right to the rules of water is that uh, the figures do not depend on the signifier and its effects, right? So that would be like more Lacanian or Sosirian, perhaps. Uh, but they go on to say, but the signifying chain that depends on the figural effects, this chain itself being composed of a signifying signs, crushing the signifiers as well as the signifiers, treating words as things, which is that comment about like partial objects again fabricating new unities, creating from non-figurative figures, configurations of images that form and then disintegrate. Right, so that's the big move um, that, that Leotard gives us, is this way of understanding how the, the schizophrenic process is actually producing these figures and these signifying chains, which is gonna give us our point signs. And then look, uh, the move is then to say, right, but Leotard is also suffering, uh, or his theory suffers from using the paralogism of signification, right? Which is going to be to, um, in a sense, what they're kind of getting at is then that, that this process, right, which he has a, a figurative matrix, the name of desire, but, well, if it has a name, the figurative matrix is then going to have to rely on uh, signification for representation is going to be where Leotard messes up here. A great summation of the paragraph. Uh, any questions on any phrasing elements here before we move on? Uh, please, anyone, feel free to type it out wherever you're at, or uh, if you're in the chat, you're free to unmute yourself and say a thing or two if you'd like. All right, the next one's a big one. So uh, this will probably be the last paragraph for the day, and we will spend time discussing it. Uh, this one is 
This one sucks. This is a, this is like a three paragraph paragraph. Um, I don't mean it sucks as in it's bad. It's just I get lost reading this one. You um, want to divide it into chunks? Can it be divided into chunks? I mean, not to get too much of an ass comment, uh, but like the whole in its parts here is kind of important because the last line is the question of why they're asking all of this. Like those questions are what make this. Yeah, I know that. I mean, I'm wondering we could because there's a bit to talk about the private man stuff. The organ. No, that's fair. So let's see. Um, let's go up to uh, discernible identity. So it'll just be like that's like two sentences, and we'll we'll take breaks as we go. Maybe this one is actually worth taking breaks pretty regularly. So. Okay, you want me to read? If you would like to, you're more than welcome. <sighs> Civilization is defined by the decoding and the deterritorialization of flows in capitalist production. Any method will do for ensuring the universal decoding, the privatization brought to bear on property, goods, and the means of production, but also on the organs of private man himself. The abstraction of monetary qualities, but also the abstraction of the quantity of labor, the limitless nature of the relationship between capital and labor capacity, and between the flows of financing and the flows of income or means of payment, the scientific and technical form assumed by flows of code themselves, the formation of floating configurations starting from lines and points without a discernible identity. Um, I mean, this really reads more like a, a conclusion of what, you know, what capitalism is it's the production of things like property right you know that's not to say that things like property are not real they're very much real but they can only exist in this uh, in this set uh, you know in, in this system because uh, if we go back to uh you know their more anthropological work with uh, uh savages and barbarians and stuff like that they talk about how these different debt alliances were what held society together, right? Uh, and one clear example is gift giving. You always gave more or less so that you can always be in a relationship with somebody else. So you always have to give back. So that means you never reciprocate a gift that's of equal value. Because if you do that, then you break the kinship organization. Um, I mean, that's just one example of a relationship that's held together by debt. And over here, you know when when you get to the capitalist version of this essentially what you produce is this what they're talking about is there you produce a new organism and that's one of the aspects of Deleuze and Guattari that's very interesting because what they're going to say is that things I mean this is going to depend on your reading this is you know I, I like to read this these stuff that they say about organs and stuff as literally as possible so uh they're basically saying they change the way your body is because there's there's for the, if we go back to the very first 10 pages of the book the distinction between you know the physical body and biological systems and the social organization which they hold don't share any distinction for Deleuze and Guattari it's only, it's it's a, it's it's a distinction that's merely superficial or as they say merely phenomenological um and in this sense what we have here is that they they have like this what they what they're doing is basically a theory of evolution, right? How how do we develop the traits that we have? Well, we develop it in this environment that's included in a social system. And so things like private man, the fact that you know your organs are considered as your own rather than being this collective thing shared by the body without organs of the earth, or the body without organs of the despot, 
that the fact that you know you have this notion of a private body without organs is symptomatic of capitalism. So I, I mean, that's what they mean by private man. It's the fact that you know you, you're, these partial objects can be separated and stratified in a specific way for it to be removed from different circumstances. And at least for now, I mean, it's there, you know, that's not to say that one is better than the other. It's not they're not saying that one time period was better than this time period, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What they're saying, moreover, is that there's a certain difference in what we're experiencing now. Well, and it's and it's the definition of cap, of civilization here, the defined by the decoding and the deterritorialization of flows in capitalist production. Any method will do for ensuring this universal decoding. That sentence, as they kind of continue really through the rest of this paragraph, is sort of an underlying point where we're sort of screaming forward at whatever it takes. And it's the any method. The method first is the privatization brought to bear on all of these things, but also the abstraction of labor the as a, another method. Um, the formation of floating configurations starting from lines and points without a discernible identity. All that matters is there's a universal decoding. That's what capitalism cares about. Like that's the thing that matters. That's capitalist production in a nutshell across the board. Mm -hmm. And this comes with an important theoretical difficulty, right? Because what we're ultimately getting at here is, so the, the, the two sentences you just, uh, or the two phrases you just looked at, so I read those in the McLuhan thing they were talking about earlier, two mediums, right? And so we can say with the despotic, there's the medium of overcoding that comes to constitute the barbarian, right? In a similar way, we can say that capital um, is involved in right, the universal decoding. So what is civilization? Well, civilization is understood through the medium of decoding and deterritorialization, right? As opposed to overcoding and that, that kind of interplay of the, uh, of the overcoding and then the um, the problem of like decoding and recoding. So if you push that a little bit further here, that means we're dealing with capitalism in the medium of schizophrenia, right? Or constant reconfiguration. What are the mediums then of the schizophrenic process for the decoding and deterritorialization that capitalism uses to constitute civilization? Uh, and this is where the, the flux really is, I think. Well, what you just read, the, that list, I like your point there that that is a list and those are methods because what you're getting there then is a series of um, schizophrenic mediums for deterritorializing and de um, decoding, right? Yes. Well, and I, I'm going to get into the next uh, grouping. Let's. I'm going to continue reading really quick. The route taken by the decoded flows is traced by recent monetary history. The role of the dollar short-term migrating capital, the floating of currencies, the new means of financing and credit, the special drawing rights, and the new form of crises and speculations. Our societies exhibit a marked taste for all codes, codes foreign or exotic, but this taste is destructive and morbid. Oh, that's, that's, that's a that bit, The bit about money and stuff, that's... Yeah, I mean, this is... I, I mean... I mean, this really is starting to look like the conclusion to what that whole stuff we saw at the very beginning with regards to, um, you know, exchange relationships, what it all leads up to. You know, capitalism is essentially schizophrenizing for, you know, you can find a simple example of this in the sense of, you know, 
a very novel invention nowadays is a grocery store. You can't, uh, um, you can't, I mean, a grocery store couldn't exist during kinship times because the medium of exchange within that store wouldn't make any sense. You know, you can't just go and, you know, have all these products and then buy it. So what's happening is in capitalism, the codes are always being scrambled because you're always having these new relationships, new relationships of production and new, and you, you can th think about things like advertising, you know, constantly reinserting desire into these fields and constantly replugging it in and plugging it out, which in, in a sense, you know, you, you have, you know, it's like saying, you know, when you go to the grocery store, you feel lost, you have too many options, which cereal do I buy? Why, why are there so many options of cereal, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, th these are all, you know, symptoms of what the effect of scrambling all the codes are. Well, I mean, if you want to, my favorite example that I couldn't help because I was pre-reading this, um, NFTs, there's an NFT. If you're not familiar with cryptocurrency, it's a giant nightmare, weird Ayn Rand, Mad Max wasteland. But uh, one specific example is fascinating. Um, it's called uh, uh, the, the N Project. There's a thousand NFTs that have random numbers. That's it. They don't do anything. They don't have art. It's just random numbers. And they're selling for literally thousands of dollars. I think twenty to $40,000 each. Um, that as a thing, if like just take a second to think through that. But if you want to talk about the schizophrenizing and the mixing up of codes, that's a pretty fucking good example as far as I can think. Well, and let's expand this with the Leotardian point here, right? Because if this is a process of schizophrenization, then right, the Leotard's point does hold about the creation of images and the way in which they're dealing with the signifying chain so as to constitute um, what is effectively the coordination and ultimately the subjectivity that will be uh, consummated and consumed, right? Just to put it in capital. And with that, there's this question of perpetuation because we saw them call out the limitless in that. So with the despotic in that, we had um, a paranoiac medium, right? Particularly through the medium of overcoding in relation to the despotic and the aristot, right? We'll see this later, but I, I want to mention it now because I think it helps to uh, understand what's going on here. Because Leotard's got another point, which is the way in which signification is being subverted by the um, by the figure matrix, right, by desire. At the same time, those codifications, especially those overcodings, are still being constituted, and that gives us the relation of the Aristotle, and ultimately the interplay of that uh, overcoding process, right, that paranoiac process, especially, and then the. Uh, the schizophrenic process we're describing now, where um, the way in which uh, uh, signification or is happening here through content and expression, those two playing on each other is ultimately what we mean when we're talking about the delirium. Uh, in, in a nutshell, there's also the recording process in that, but the recording of that interplay is what we're getting at here in terms of understanding civilization's delirium rather than it's discontents. Now I'm going to continue to the next bit because I think that continues it. Oh, let's see, where did I leave off? Uh, destructive morbid. Well, decoding doubtless means understanding and translating a code. It also means destroying the code as such, assigning it an archaic, folkloric, or residual function, 
which makes of psychoanalysis and ethnology two disciplines highly regarded in our modern societies. We'll stop there. Um, oh my God. Um, I, why is something cool? Well, if I actually break it down and I explain every bit of it, I ruin the thing that was cool. I, that's the, the decoding of it as such immediately by quantifying it in such a place destroys the code as such, assigns it this archaic folkloric residual function and psychoanalysis and ethnology do this. This is what they do is they break down the desires, the pushes, the whys, the, the deconstruction of it. But by doing so, the code loses meaning. The, uh, the, uh, the cynicism of the time here, uh, I'm, I go back to, uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, and his talk about um, how people sit and talk through and mock in this sort of postmodern ironic cynicism, the the earnestness of of uh, musicals or old TV shows or how hokey they were or these things because now we understand that oh these things are silly and we're kind of beyond them. This is what he's talking about: the cynicism of the modern societies is this deconstruction that is breaking down these codes. But by decoding them immediately, we've destroyed the code as it existed as such, because it was flows. Now we've broken it down as such. We've assigned it this other thing. We've done all these things. And this moves us into a different position where now those codes, because they're concretized, they're kind of dead. They're, they're still there, but they're not interesting. They're not the next thing. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of examples of this actually in just general society of the things we aren't allowed to say or talk about, um, the things inside of different situations you won't call out or you won't break down and the worry that what if someone else calls it, uh, the joke running around about uh, uh, unicorns in the VC community, uh, unicorns, Twitter, these other, these companies that are valued at billions of dollars who've never turned a profit and probably never will, but they don't talk about that. Because if they did, these things start falling apart, the, the codes of these elements. Um, they're not dealing with flows, they're dealing with the codes. Do you, it's, it's a really interesting play. But again, towards this idea that psychoanalysis and ethnology become highly regarded in a modern society because it's able to break them down. It's able to do these things that decode, that, that create sort of this moment or this residual function. Uh, and then to continue, is that a fair assessment of that little bit, Varun, anyone? Because it's a complex idea. I just want to make sure we try to get it across. I mean, I really liked your opener, right? When I explained something, I ruined it. I mean, and that is kind of it, right? Because you're getting two operations, right? You're getting decoding in terms of the translation, which comes with it by the same token of destruction, right? So when you place them in the terms of what something means and you, you bring in the overcoding process, right? Uh, well, I assume it's the overcoding process, but the, the translation, in one sense, you are kind of providing format expression, um, uh, a, a playscape, if you will. But at the same time, you're, you are also destroying um, the, the format expression that's there too, right? Because you're breaking down, since it's decoding or not, right? You're breaking down how the figure matrix is operating. And then the same token, right? There's the problem of then working with the um, the overcoding that then 
you get this this really great tension between the two yeah i like that um, i'm gonna read the next little bit it's a little bit longer i'm gonna go up until the end of production process yet it would be a serious error to consider the capitalist flows and the schizophrenic flows as identical under the general theme of a decoding of the flows of desire their affinity is great to be sure everywhere capitalism sets in motion schizo flows that animate our arts and our sciences just as they congeal into the production of our own sick schizophrenics we have seen that the relationship of schizophrenia to capitalism went far beyond problems of modes of living environment ideology etc and that it should be examined at the deepest level of one and the same economy one and the same production process uh, mostly i wanted to block this out because there's two bits that they're talking about here and it's the next sentence repeats this um but i kind of want to make sure we state it cleanly first uh capitalist flows and schizophrenic flows are not the same thing um aside from one being more molecular one being molar uh they're not identical um they don't do the same stuff their affinity is great one sets the other in motion one even produces the other significantly uh, ultimately society does produce schizos as they talk about it um uh, but the need is that capitalism and schizophrenia are so deeply intertwined that talking about one without the other uh is is pointless they're at the deepest level of the same economy the same production process and that's the part i wanted to make sure we hit on with that any other analysis please questions all right then i'll move to the next little bit here uh and then uh we may I may just go to the end because the rest of this is kind of a little bit and then a series of questions of their overall doubt. So if anyone has any other thoughts, I'm going to kind of read to the end of this, please. Varun. Are we at our society? Yes. You mind I read? I really like this bit. Sure, go for it. <clears throat> our society produces schizos the same way it produces Pearl shampoo or Ford cars. The only difference being the schizos are not saleable. How then does one explain the fact that capitalist production is constantly arresting the schizophrenic process and transforming the subject of the process into a confined clinical entity, as though it saw this process the image of its own death coming from within? Why does it make the schizophrenic into a sick person not only nominally, but in reality? Why does it confine its madman and madwoman, instead of seeing in them its own heroes and heroines, its own fulfillment? And instead of seeing, in, and, and when it can no longer recognize the figure of a simple illness, why does it keep its artists and even its scientists under the, such close surveillance? As though they risked unleashing the flows that would be dangerous for capitalist production and charged with the revolutionary potential. So long as these flows are not co-opted or absorbed by the laws of the market, why does it form in a gigantic machine for social repression, psychic repression aimed at what nevertheless constitutes its own reality, the decoded flows? I love all of those questions because it's, it's just accurate. Um, the, our society produces schizos. It produces this sort of nature in people, this sickness, as we've talked about it, the way that repression works, the way that lack is produced, the way that repression works within us, the paralogisms, all of this. And the question would be, so it produces these, this people in this setup. Why then does it actually make them into a sick person? Why does it treat them as uh, so deeply non-normative as to be worthy of jailing, as to be worthy of holding up and drugging and doing these things to 
why does it confine its mad men and mad women instead of seeing them as its heroes and heroines, its own fulfillment? If it's giving birth to them and this is this perfection of the process, oh my Lord, I am a schizophrenic process. I am capitalism. These are my children. Why am I not cheering them on? Why do I hold them down as though they risked unleashing flows that would be dangerous for capitalist production, charged with revolutionary potential, as long as these flows are not co-opted or absorbed by the laws of the market? Uh, why does it form, in turn, a gigantic machine for social repression and psychic repression, aimed at what nevertheless constitutes its own reality, decoded flows? It's, it's such a beautiful, also like the line it produces, schizos the same way it produces Prell shampoo. Just fucking very nice and to the point and a little dark, but true. Is Pearl Shampoo popular in France? Uh, I think in the 60s and 70s, there weren't a lot of, like they didn't have a shampoo aisle. Like I think there were only a handful and Prell was one of the big ones. Oh, now we know what the Liz uses. You're assuming he, he takes showers and baths. I mean, for someone who's balding, his hair looks pretty good. I mean, he managed to keep it pretty nice. And I think we will leave off actually on that, those questions. Uh, any, any comments or questions up to this point? We will continue from the bottom of 245 with the answer uh, to all of those questions. Oh, yeah. I, I do have a comment. Uh, one of the things that sticks out to me there too, though, is right, and I just made this point that we're talking about capitalism um, in terms of the schizo flows and that, right? Uh, and they are taking pains here to say that they're not, they're still not the same thing, right? So there's an important qualification which made sense because if the schiz flow might be possible in different socios and that, right? Um, it doesn't have to function as a capitalist flow. flow. So I think one of the things they're getting at here is if you go all the way back to like 1.1 and 1.2, right? One of the big things in the second synthesis is going to be um, how the schizophrenic and paranoiac processes are, um, are put to work by the BWO to produce the surplus value and that. I think here that's kind of the big thing with these questions they're raising that since they're not the same thing, Right, the, the capitalist is flow. I think what they're kind of implying here is um, if we put it in terms of a question of function, capital is socius, the, the interesting thing to think about that is why does capital is socius use the flow as the ways that it does, right? In these, these schizophren uh, schizophrenizing capacities, right? Why does it operate this way? And then at the same token, right? Where is this tension coming from toward the schizophrenic itself? All right. Well, with that, I'm going to go ahead and let us end our recording today. Uh, thank all of you again for coming. This has been wonderful. Uh, we will be continuing off bottom of 245 next week. I look forward to all of your thoughts. Please take a second to read through uh, the text we've talked about so far. We're going to read up a little bit next. See if you've got any questions coming up next time, but we will uh, continue. Uh, time. Thank you so much. Talk to you then.